podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. How are you today? I am just great. The sun is shining. You are here. <laughs> Life is good. It's a beautiful day. It is. Yeah. Kicked off season two last week. Yeah. Went really well. It did. People like Jenny Trout. Jenny Trout, she's a cool lady. She's like really cool. Yeah. She had tiny hands, but so small. Small, small. <laughs> those tools. But she held them all. But she held them all. And she held her job. own. Oh, yes, yeah, she oh. did. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, this week we have more heritage minutes to explore unpack. yeah this is a heavy one it's a long one yeah grace has like pre-warned me I'm, I'm getting a little nervy because grace has told me that this is like it's heavy yeah and it's one that i really want to represent authentically okay. and non-colonially if you Ooh, if you catch my okay. drift so this week we are doing the sitting bowl heritage oh, minute okay which growing up in eastern canada I think you we don't learn about the Western rebellions. No. At all. No. It's never brought up. Even though I think that it's probably the most defining political issue in young Canada. Yeah. And it really it wasn't until I went to university that I even realized the extent or the level of of this type of of these types of issues uh, in Canada. Yeah, like um, the amount of conflict mm -hmm. and warfare that takes place mm -hmm. really goes a long way to shaping Canada's policies. Yeah. And Sitting Bull, like, I was so uneducated on it that for a really long time I didn't know Sitting Bull was a person. I thought it was yeah. an event. Okay. Like, I thought it was the name of an event or an a, pl a place, but it's, yeah, it's a person. Yeah, I remember, I remember thinking it was a place, and I remember learning in, like, uh, history course I took in university that Sitting Bull was a was a, is, like was a person yeah um and then kind of like learning about that but I I have seen the minute but it was a long time ago it's not one I've watched recently so yeah it's I mean the heritage minute itself is uh not one of the most like interesting ones it's not super yeah. dynamic essentially it's American troops meeting with Sitting Bull with James Merle Walsh, who is the head of the Northwest Mounted Police during this period mm -hmm. of time as kind of like the negotiator middleman at this meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I'm off the top going to thank my friend Neil Nimwakaisik. He wrote a, a paper on this Heritage Minute and oh. how it represents the event. And so actually his paper was like a really great starting point. Thanks, and Neil. So thanks to Neil. But as he kind of writes about in that paper, the... Minute doesn't do it doesn't fall into some of the pitfalls that a lot of early media would present that okay. like they give Sitting Bull agency in the sense that they say like he has decided to meet with you like it's mm -hmm. Sitting Bull's decision to meet with you and so and they give him a voice in the meeting and so there are positive representations though it's probably not the most accurate representation of how that meeting would have gone right. down they also don't really go into any of the real details and it also very much like the Sam Steele one mm -hmm. wants to present they they depict the Northwest Mounted Police not yeah. by their own virtues but by yeah. directly contrasting them with an American mm -hmm. they, so you have an aggressive yeah. invasive American who yeah. is being 
kind of quelled by Northwest. And they being like Historica Canada, like those yes. who chose to do the minute and, and how the minute was going to be portrayed, which we've learned. And a point of this podcast is to talk about why these minutes were chosen and yeah. why they were portrayed in the method that they are, like that we see them as heritage minutes. Yeah. So this would have been a pretty early heritage minute. So okay. it wasn't made by Historica Canada. It was the CRB Foundation, but it's the same deal. Right, like, right. These heritage minutes aren't made without an objection or mm-hmm. objective or yeah. without a purpose. So what are they trying to say about this? And I think they're really trying to say more about the Northwest Mounted Police than they right. are about Sitting Bull. Yeah. And so today we're going to do Sitting Bull's biography as much as we know about him okay. and his early life and the events that swirl around it. Because the other part of that Heritage Minute is that I don't think they do a good job of representing why he's in Canada and why the Americans are trying to send him back to the U.S. Okay. So off the top, yeah. I will say that. So his Lakota name is Tatanka Eotanka. But I'm going to refer to him as Sitting Bull throughout, um, as well as the other chiefs that get mentioned by name. I'm going to use their English names. Okay. Um, And his story is complex in a lot of ways, but one of them being that it's a very international story. So it doesn't just happen in the U.S. It doesn't just happen in Canada. Right. Um, And the conflicts that he is a part of go a long way to telling the story of Western colonization in Canada and the United States. Mm -hmm. That being said, I'm going to try and tell it in the most holistic way possible. However, one thing I will say is that before we dive super deep into his life, the whole principle of this story and the Heritage Minute is that Sitting Bull is crossing borders. And that notion is very white and European in itself. So for Sitting Bull, he knows that he's crossing into a new territory. He knows that he's going to Canada to escape American persecution. Okay. However, for, you know, hundreds, centuries before that, his people and other Western Plains people would be crossing that border quite liberally. It wasn't a border. It's not a border. Yeah. So um, it is one thing to keep in mind that the whole framing of this story and conflict is very colonial. Of course. And very Western. Yes. So, Welcome anyways, to history. <laughs> with all those asterisks out of the way. Yeah. Um, so Sitting Bull was a member of the Hunkpapa Sioux and was born in the Dakota Territory. Okay. The Sioux are a confederacy of several tribes that are subdivided into three major dialect groups. So we've talked about the yeah. Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Yeah. Um, this is a similar situation. Okay. So... There are three dialect groups, the Lakota, the Dakota, and the Nakota. And the Hunkpapa are one of seven council fires of the Lakota tribes. Okay, so I've heard of the Lakota tribe. Yeah. I feel like that must be a little bit like more North American kind of area, like more more in Canada. Yeah, I think the Lakota is often one that gets very romanticized in media as well. So like they're a very... They're a large group, and then I think they're quite militant as well. So you're talking about, like, frontier, romance, whatever. Yeah, I just know I've heard the Lakota. Like, I've heard that name. Also the medicine. Oh, yeah. What terrible commercial. (laughs) Yeah. How is that okay? That's not okay. I just, Uh like, is that okay? I don't Uh, think it is. No. (laughs) You just kind of, like, avert your gaze. Yeah, it's like the very (laughs) racist Dosaki's man. (laughs) Jeez. I'm pretty sure white people own whatever company oh, is selling Lakota medicine. 100%. 100%. If we're wrong, let us know. The white man with tiny, tiny hands. Tiny, tiny hands. <laughs> 
So the council fires would have been referred to as ovates in the Lakota tradition. And that's just like a meeting? So it's like, essentially, you have all of these different levels of sociopolitical groups. Mm -hmm. And they can come together and move apart. And depending on how many smaller groups are together, mm-hmm. you eventually have an ovate. And then once like the ovates are together, you have your like confederacies. Okay. So it's just like a bunch of different levels of sociopolitical organization. Okay. So the ovate, for example, would break down further into a teospei, which were bands of largely interrelated extended families that formed the most basic sociopolitical unit of the Sioux organization. Okay. Uh, the flexibility of their nomadic lifestyle meant that teospei can continually joined together and broke apart depending on the time of year. So like for the summer Mm -hmm. hunt, you're probably going to have a larger group than you would in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. And then at every level you have a chief. Mm -hmm. So sitting bull is a chief and he moves through different levels of government. So like he starts as a chief, a teospei, but then Mm -hmm. he becomes as people come to his teospei, he becomes a bigger bigger. chief. Right. So Sitting Bull was born in 1836, as far as we know, but we don't have an exact date of his birth. Right. Uh, I did see some records that said he was born in 1830, mm-hmm. so a big age gap. <laughs> At a young age of 16, he started to gain the reputation of a warrior, but he suffered a serious injury in battle that left him permanently debilitated. Oh. Sitting Bull became a medicine man and rapidly rose to be an influential leader in the Sioux Confederation. So the concept of medicine is really crucial to understanding the reputation that Sitting Bull cultivated for himself during the 1850s to 1870s. Medicine was the Lakota understanding of the bond between a man and his spirituality mm-hmm. to the extent that the great spirit gave someone strength or judgment. So okay. if you're a medicine man, it's not really like you're a doctor. No, it's more no. like you're a, an advisor. Yeah, I do understand that. I've done... I was really lucky when I was in um, university and actually post-grad, my first job post-grad, to go to the Recreation Nova Scotia Conference. Okay. And at the Recreation Nova Scotia Conference, um, there's a big uh, appreciation and a big support uh, for education on, like, different, like, First Nations and Aboriginal uh, practices and like Mm -hmm. to have uh, chiefs and like leaders in those communities like come in and like educate. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I've done like, I mean, it's it's a very expansive kind of concept, but like I've talked and learned a bit about the medicine wheel. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so like that, like, yeah, I I just assumed, you know, medicine (laughs) wheel, like I was just like, oh, it has to be something to do with doctors. It doesn't. It, it's yeah. more. It's more like, um, like a, the understanding of how things work together, um, mm-hmm. in kind of a more like political cohesive kind of way. Understanding of things. It's an understanding of things. Yeah, it's like a way, way of knowing. Yeah, and to explain it. I mean, in some ways, even in terms of modern medicine, I think it's quite a like, uh, Western medicine mm-hmm. is really slow to the idea that the foundation of your health isn't like your physical body in a lot right. of ways it's your mental health and right that goes a long way to healing the body oh and so, yeah yeah so later on as a medicine man sitting bull would have been fulfilling his role as a civil chief and advising on matters from tra- a traditional lakota perspective okay. and that's what a lot of people are really drawn to as you have western invasion of the western plains right. is that 
you want someone who's going to be leading your people and try to preserve the Lakota tradition in the face of adversity. Right. So that's the kind of reputation that he garners. And this is very much in contrast to other powerful Sioux leaders of the time, such as Red Cloud and Crazy Horse, who were known for their military prowess. And Sitting Bull does partake in raids and other military expeditions, but it's not what he's remembered for, especially yeah. because he's physically debilitated. Well, so it, is, it is interesting because I don't know everything about indigenous culture, obviously. obviously. <laughs> but I know that when names are given, it's like with a, a meaning and like a purpose. And I think yeah. it's interesting that the two going into war are like crazy horse and like red, red cloud. cloud. Yeah. And then the guy who's like doing the talking and having the meetings and like doing the thing. Yeah. Is sitting. But like, I think that's yeah, very that's good cool. Point. I think that's, really interesting yeah i don't know what the sioux naming tradition is i don't know where that specifically comes from if it's just coincidental or if it is based on like who you are as you grow up you get this kind of pseudonym but yeah definitely sitting bull is not like that just sounds to me like it's like someone who's strong who's like patient absolutely and And that's a really good characterization yeah and i think that that's so cool yeah so Sitting Bull was one of the leaders under Red Cloud who resisted penetration by the United States Army into Sioux territory from 1865 to 1868. Okay. The American westward expansion is, again, a very long and complicated story <laughs> that I do not have time to fully develop here, she nor is it have time. overly relevant. She doesn't have time, people. However... From 1854 to 1890, the United States Army engaged in a series of conflicts with various Sioux subgroups that are collectively known as the Sioux Wars. Okay. In 1865, Americans moving through the frontier began demanding for increased security along the Bozeman Trail, an overland route that connected the Gold Rush Territory of Montana to the Oregon Trail. Mm-hmm. In response, the U.S. government tried to negotiate new treaties with the Lakota, who had legal claim to the Power River country through which the trail ran. So essentially, we want to get these pioneers out to the Gold Rush area. We can't do that without crossing through Lakota territory. So the U.S. government is trying to negotiate to allow these white people through (laughs) Lakota territory. Okay. During negotiations, the military sent two battalions to establish new forts along the Bozeman Trail. The act of aggression discouraged the Lakota from signing any new treaties and left determined to protect their land. So before negotiations are done, they're like, we got them all in this room, guys. It's such white people bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you get them at the table and you're like, we're going to be friends and we're going to talk about this. But behind scenes, we've already sent people to go set up the forts, so you better just agree with us. Yeah. Yeah, that's so messed up. Yeah. I know. It's so stupid. And I know. And I know. Like, we say that, yeah, it's so messed up. And then you look back at history and you're like, everything is We've always been like this. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's never been good. It's always been bad and it always gets worse. Yes. That is the Minute Women mantra. You said in one episode that I'm the opposite. Like, I... Don't look at history in the past through rose-colored glasses. No, the opposite of rose-colored <laughs> glasses. that's what this podcast has taught me. Like, everything is shit. Like, <laughs> like if you want to walk away from an episode feeling good, usually, yeah. especially if it's about white people and their dealings with indigenous peoples in yeah. this country, go in assuming everyone will be brutally massacred. Just yeah. assume that. And then when, like, one person lives, you're like, You'll oh. You'll feel good. And it's not as bad as i thought it was gonna be that's how i go i just assume everybody who i like 
when that Grace is talking about <laughs> is going to die a brutal death. Die a brutal and death. Then if, their parents will be dead within the first five yeah, minutes of yeah. the episode. And their dog. And their dog. <laughs> they had to kill their own dog, <laughs> Old Yeller style. Oh That's my awful. God. It's too much. Throughout 1866, the U.S. government established forts while the Lakota, led by Red Cloud, realized they would not be able to take on a fully defended fort and therefore pursued a campaign of raids on wagons traveling along the road. So they know that they can't, once a fort is established and it's fully armed and manned, they're yeah. like, our tactics aren't going to be able to defeat that. So they just, it's almost like guerrilla warfare. Mm-hmm. Just any wagon going along could be attacked by Sioux. And they don't care if they're civilian or if they're military. Right. Because it doesn't seem like anybody cares if they're civilians or, or if they're no, military. So. absolutely not. And it's, I think that's the, the funny thing in a lot of those, like, Western romanced histories of, like, the really dangerous, like, Iroquois and the yeah. Sioux and whatever. It's just, like, indigenous people treating white people the way white people treat everyone else yeah (laughs) it's just like okay you want a taste of your own medicine and they're like oh my god (laughs) i can't handle i can't deal yeah (laughs) bunch of babies (laughs) yeah exactly on december 21st 1866 lakota's fired on woodcutters working near fort phil kearney the relief party was commanded by Captain William J. Fetterman. Fetterman's party was drawn into an ambush by an estimated 1,000 to 3,000 Lakota, and they were entirely wiped out. Okay. Due to the high casualties on the American side, the Americans called this Fetterman's Massacre. Shortly afterward, the U.S. government concluded that maintaining the forts along the Bozeman Trail would be too expensive and was not bringing the security to travelers along the trail that they had hoped. So in reality, these forts are causing more problems like if you had just sent the people along the trail you know the Sioux probably aren't going yeah. to like brutally murder <laughs> probably wouldn't have been them. an issue probably wouldn't have been as but big of an issue are. but then you went and set up a bunch of forts and like acted yeah. really aggressively yeah red cloud refused to meet with the u.s army so they were forced to retreat as the americans left the forts lakota warriors would go in and burn them down only after the new forts were destroyed did Red Cloud agree to meet with the U.S. Army at Fort Lemery and sign the Treaty of Fort Lemery in the summer of 1868. So, so this um, brings yeah. to the end of a seri- one of the conflicts in the series of conflicts. Okay. That is the Great Sioux Wars. It established the Great Sioux Reservation, which included all of South Dakota territory west of the Missouri River. It also declared additional territory reaching as far as the Yellowstone and North Platte Rivers as unceded territory for the sole use by the Sioux. So essentially they agreed to a reservation, Mm -hmm. but it's massive. It's like huge. And the U.S. can't infiltrate that reservation. Or so they hoped. <laughs> or, so they, or so they thought. Because white people are really good at breaking treaties that they wrote. Yep. It was shortly after the signing of the Fort Lemery Treaty that Sitting Bull likely became the chief of the Wakan Band, succeeding his uncle who was growing old. So his uncle steps down mm-hmm. and allows Sitting Bull to take over. Mm-hmm. As chief of a prominent Hunkpapa Teospei, Sitting Bull had to develop cross-tribal unity by encouraging other bands to support his policies. The flexibility of existing Lakota political structures meant that in multi-band villages, a prominent chief could exert substantial influence, especially when other bands had coalesced around his camp. So that's the process of, you know, his 
his family unit, this mm-hmm. like greater extended family, is the nucleus. But Sitting Bull is prominent enough that other groups are like, let's just. Is he the mitochondria? Is he the powerhouse <laughs> of the cell? Yeah, I mean, sort of. I think he's more the brain. Oh. I don't know who the mitochondria is in this particular scenario. As Sitting Bull's reputation developed and as he became the most vocal proponent for a policy of resistance against white encroachment and settlement, he emerged as the most formative influence in these multi-band camps. Okay. So you have some Sioux who are in favor of negotiation with the U.S. So the creation of the reservation, for example, that's something that Sitting Bull would have been opposed to because he's like, I want resistance against this system of of white compromise. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we should be compromising with them on territory that's already ours. Like, Uh, they're the invaders. Duh. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I see why people liked him because he said things that were smart and fair. Yeah, it's definitely coming from from a point of we just need to resist at all costs yeah. versus let's compromise. Let's settle these negotiations. Let's yeah. just get let's make something. a deal. Yeah. yeah. He would rather. He doesn't trust the deals, exactly. essentially, which exactly. is smart. Don't trust white people. <laughs> the peace established at the Fort Leary Treaty was short lived. <gasps> Shocking. Wow. The threat of violence. Let me guess. Let me guess who changed it. Let me guess. Was it a white guy? Nailed it. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) The threat of violence was always there. The U.S. government had established a series of well-equipped forts along the border of the Great Sioux Reservation. So as soon as they were like, all right, this is where the Sioux live, just outside of that, we're going to have a bunch of forts. Okay. So essentially just border patrol. Uh. Railway surveyors and settlers began consistently appearing in the area. In 1874, the government dispatched the Custer Expedition to examine the Black Hills. The Lakota were alarmed at his expedition. Before Custer's column had returned to Fort Abraham Lincoln, news of their discovery of gold in the Black Hills of Dakota was telegraphed nationally. So that's the other thing is that so you're already sending railways through their territory without Mm -hmm. their permission. Settlers are allowed to settle essentially as squatters Mm -hmm. and the government's not doing anything about it. And then you send an expedition looking for gold. Like that's the most stereotypical money grab ever. It's like, well guys, I think we found some gold when there was probably no real proof of any of that. Well, I, there is gold there. Oh, okay. So, I mean, they probably had word but that's even worse in some ways because that means you were already in that area yeah you already kind of knew that it was there you wouldn't have just blindly done it so shady so shady reports of gold attracted hundreds of prospectors and fortune hunters initially the united states army struggled to keep miners out of the region so they are trying quote-unquote right to keep miners out of the reservation right In December of 1874, for example, a group of miners led by John Gordon from Sioux City, Iowa, managed to evade army patrols and reached the Black Hills, where they spent the next three months before the army ejected them. So they were there for three months, and then the army was like, all right, you guys gotta go. Ugh, so dumb. Such evictions, however, increased political pressure on the Grant administration to secure the Black Hills away from the Lakota. So the more that white people know that there's gold there, the more they want to mine it. And when the army comes in and kicks them out, they're like, our national army is oppressing us as white people. (laughs) 
Unbelievable. Yeah. So Ulysses S. Grant is the president during this period yeah. of time. And so he's in terms of like, I know he has like that civil war reputation mm-hmm. and he kind of like wins the war for the union. But yeah, he does a really bad job of negotiating with like indigenous groups yeah. during his administration. <laughs> like all presidents. <laughs> There's a trend. <laughs> <laughs> In May of 1875, Sioux delegations headed by Spotted Tail, Red Cloud, and Lone Horn traveled to Washington, D.C. in an 11th-hour attempt to persuade President Ulysses S. Grant to honor existing treaties and stem the flow of miners into their territories. And that's the other thing. They're just showing up to be like, you signed the document. You said that you were going to do it. Yeah. And you haven't. Like, we're not even asking for anything new or more. We're, we're just, just asking you to do what you said you were going to do. Yeah. We're just letting you know that it's not being followed. And we just want you to do what you said you do because we're doing what we said we do. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. <laughs> so they met with Grant, Secretary of the Interior, Columbus Delano, and Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Edward Smith. The U.S. leaders said that the Congress wanted to pay the tribes $25,000 for the land and have them relocated to Indian Territory, which is in present-day Oklahoma. So they're like, we can give you a new reservation now that we've learned that we've given away land that has a really valuable resource on it. Mm. This is not a game of Catan. (laughs) No, exactly. Like that (laughs) are people's lives. Yes. (laughs) They 100% view it and then they're like, oh, shit the reservation has a sheep tile on it and that's going to be super valuable. I got to put my house a road there. I got to go put my roads there right now. So Ulysses S. Grant is playing a horribly racist game of Catan against the Lakota yeah, and course. he's just stealing all the tiles. He's not playing by the rules. No, he's the robber. He's the, he is the robber a hundred percent. Okay. So the delegates refused to sign the new treaty with these stipulations. Yeah. So, the Lakota are out of there. They're like, fuck no, I'm not doing that. They're like, bye-bye. See you never. Peace. So Sitting Bull was not a military-focused chief, like I said earlier. After 1868, Sitting Bull primarily partook in only raids or engaged in combat when it was about the safety of his people and they were being put in jeopardy. Sounds like a stand-up guy to me. He's pretty cool. Otherwise, he fulfilled his civil responsibilities as a chief and protected the women and children. Like, that's his primary focus. However, when the delegations failed to reach peaceful terms, he and Crazy Horse would be the Sioux chiefs that led the Sioux into what is known in Western history as the Great Sioux War. So this is like the climax of this series of conflicts. Yeah. And really, you know, in no, in like not a disrespectful way at all. Mm. It's just like Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. Like Sitting Bull, that sounds like an odd couple. <laughs> well, Sitting Bull just sounds so like powerful and strong. Yeah. You think of like a Sitting Bull, like that is a strong image. And then there's like Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse is crazy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> someone should do a podcast just about the Sioux Wars. Okay. It's on. It's a really. In, if you are into military history, it's super interesting. If like you're a, into social political history, super, super interesting. interesting. It's like a really. If you're into blood and mass murder. It's for you. Yeah, it's for you. There's a lot <laughs> of that. But yeah, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, they're teaming up, and because nice. they're they're two chiefs that are like pro resistance, okay. not pro settlement. Okay. On June 25th, 1876, the climax of these years of hostility between the whites and the Sioux came when Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custard 
overconfident and eager to restore his eroded military prestige, led the 7th Cavalry against a large body of Sioux in the valley of Little Bighorn River. So have you heard of the Battle of yes, Little Bighorn? Yeah. I sure have. So that's this. Okay. <laughs> in the brief engagement, which you've probably heard as Custer's last stand, uh, it's yeah. one of the bloodiest days in the American Indian Wars. Custer and about 240 men were killed. Sitting Bull... The by Custer. By Custer. You're out. He's the guy who also led the expedition. So yeah. the Custer expedition. He's not... He's... I don't like him. Oh, okay. He also looks like a tool. <laughs> like, Google him. He looks stupid. Well, Custer is just a... Like, Colonel Custer. Colonel Custer. That's a name. Lieutenant Colonel Lieutenant, Custer. Lieutenant... Uh, Lieutenant, because we're in Canada. This is America, though. Oh, Lieutenant. <laughs> it's like my... I just hate the way Lieutenant sounds. I think Lieutenant sounds much prettier. There's no F in it, though. I know, but we're allowed to have weird things in Canada. That's we're all it. about weird That's things. That's our weird thing. That's our weird thing. We just put Fs in random places. Love it. Love that for us. <laughs> Sitting Bull, the acknowledged leader in the Sioux victory, knew that now the full weight of the U.S. Army would be brought against him, and he sought to avoid disaster. So this is a really publicized, public death of a, an American military leader, 240 men die in one day he knows that they're not viewed as like the noble savage the like peaceful right. indian they're they're seen as a threat someone's gonna come at them yeah, th yeah they're not gonna be able to just walk away from this on the 21st of october he met with colonel nelson appleton miles who was leading a campaign against the sioux to discuss the possibility of peace. Mm -hmm. Miles insisted that the Sioux needed to surrender their guns, horses, and retire to their reservations. And Sitting Bull refused, and the fighting continued. Mm. In November, exhausted Sioux began crossing the border into Canada, making camps in the Wood Mountain area in what is now southern Saskatchewan. Okay. In May, Sitting Bull followed. Inspector James Morrill Walsh of the Northwest Mounted Police, riding with half a dozen men to the camp, which now contained 5,000 Sioux, met with Sitting Bull. Well, if that's a big group, yeah, that, that's not hiding in the woods anymore. That's like a mass <laughs> exodus of people. That's, uh, that's a bigger population than the town of Lunenburg. <laughs> yeah. Everyone left. <laughs> They're all here now. <laughs> so he met with Sitting Bull, as he had with earlier arrivals, mm -hmm. and he assured him protection from U.S. Army pursuits if the Sioux obeyed the laws of Canada and did not conduct raids across the border. <laughs> so it's like, as long as you follow our laws and you're kind of peaceful, we will make sure that the U.S. does not invade Canada and yeah. attack you. So Sitting Bull agreed to these terms, denouncing the Americans and claiming to be a British Indian. So he's like, I'll be a British subject, quote unquote. Okay. Um to avoid what's happening in the U.S. Yeah. The summer of 1877 was filled with tension as minor incidents and disagreements threatened to erupt into war. Mm -hmm. Three American emissaries who attempted to convince Sitting Bull to return to the United States were imprisoned by the Sioux and were saved only by the intervention of Walsh and Atchison Irvine, the assistant commissioner of the Northwest Mounted Police. So... I do think that they represent it fairly in the sense that the Northwest Mounted Police I just don't want to get involved. Mm -hmm. And so they will only do the like smallest of middleman things. Right. They're like, we just don't want you guys to like start brutally murdering each other and then that leak into the rest of Canada. Right. Like we're trying to build a railway. We've got other <laughs> shit going on. We've got things to do. Yeah. It's like I really don't care about you and I don't care about you. Just don't. Please yeah, stop. Just <laughs> please chill. stop bringing us into this. 
On another occasion, Walsh arrested three indigenous people for horse stealing in the middle of the Sioux camp. Critical questions continue to worry those in positions of authority on the prairies. Would Sitting Bull, despite his promise, launch forays across the borders, perhaps goading the U.S. into pursuing him onto Canadian soil? Mm -hmm. Would the presence of the Sioux on Blackfoot hunting grounds provoke a war between these two fierce prairie tribes? Mm -hmm. Would Sitting Bull try to unite the Western tribes against the whites in order to recover the buffalo country? Were rumors true that in 1878 there was an alliance sign between Sitting Bull and Louis Riel? So many questions. So many questions. (laughs) (laughs) From various accounts of Sitting Bull's time in Canada, we actually start to learn a little bit about his character and personality. So that's the other thing. is like, we don't know a lot about him as a person. He's just like, we know him through his meetings with white people for the most part. Right. One of the most bizarre accounts comes from letters of Inspector Francis Dickens. So Francis Dickens is the son of Charles Dickens, and he moved to Canada and became an inspector. As in, like, Tale of Two Cities, best of times, worst of times? The Charles Dickens. That guy. Yeah, he's an inspector with the Northwest Mounted Police. Interesting. On the 17th of June in 1878, Dickens wrote that he had been invited to meet with Sitting Bull in his camp with only an interpreter present. So there's just these three guys there. Dickens boldly attempted to broker peace between the Lakota and the Americans, which only the son of a rich white guy would be like, I think I can create world peace. Yeah. I think I could do what Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Love it. Yeah. I can do that. Uh, no problem. I'll just uh, I'll just come. and I'm just going to talk to the guy. Yeah. We should be all wrapped up around 3 p.m. But, like, have you guys tried talking before? (laughs) Like, he went went and did a yoga retreat, (laughs) and he's like, I think what we're missing is conversation. (laughs) I was like, he got some really, really good weed, and he was like, I'm going to sort this all out real quick. I can do this. Just give me a minute. (laughs) Guys, what if we just, like, put down our guns? (laughs) So his hopes of being the hero are quickly evaporated by Sitting Bull. (laughs) No. So Dickens told Sitting Bull that it would be best for him and his people if they surrendered to U.S. law. Hmm. And Sitting Bull produced a cheap American pirated edition of Oliver Twist, written by Dickens' father, Charles Dickens, and asked him to read a quote from the character Mr. Bumble. (gasps) And this is the quote I'm pretty sure that they read. So this is the quote from Oliver Twist. Mm Mm-hmm. It was all Mrs. Bumble. She would do it, urged Mr. Bumble, looking round to ascertain that his partner had left the room. That's no excuse, returned Mr. Brownlow. You were present on the occasion of the destruction of the trinkets, and indeed are the more guilty of the two in the eye of the law, for the law supposes that your wife acts under your direction. If the law supposes that, said Mr. Bumble, squeezing his hat emphatically in both hands, the law is an ass, an idiot. If that's the eye of the law, the law is a bachelor. And the worst I wish the law is that his eye may be opened by experience. By experience. So the quote is essentially, the law is stupid. And if the law just looked around at the situation. Your dad says (laughs) the law is stupid, buddy. Yeah. Your daddy wrote that. Your dad wrote this. (laughs) And then Sitting Bull got Francis Dickens to sign the book. That's... (laughs) awesome like he's well read he's really smart like and he's super funny funny. yeah and so he's just like you want me to surrender to u.s law and like he's like let me show you what the law is yeah let me tell you how idiotic the law can be yeah and to make it (laughs) in your dad's own words yeah (laughs) 
We're going to use the book your dad wrote. Yeah. <laughs> so the United States government wanted Sitting Bull and his Sioux either to return to American tor- territory where it could exercise control over them or to have them settle permanently in Canada. Canadian officials who had no desire to adopt the Sioux also wanted them to recross the border, but did not dare risk war with the Sioux by using force. So that's the dynamic is that the U S either wants them to come back so they can continue to bully them mm-hmm. or just get them to leave entirely. The Canadian government doesn't want to pay for the Sioux. They don't want to take on that burden, quote unquote, but they also know that their presence in the West is so weak that if the Sioux wanted to cause a lot of disruption they could and so they don't want to pressure the Sioux into doing anything that would make them hostile towards the Canadian government right at the suggestion of James McLeod commissioner of the Northwest Mounted Police the Canadian government arranged a meeting between General Alfred Howe Terry of the U.S. Army and Sitting Bull on the 17th of October 1877 at Fort Walsh Saskatchewan so I believe this is the one in the Heritage Minute okay it's this meeting Distrusting the Americans and their promises of a pardon and just treatment, Sitting Bull refused to return to the United States and the meeting broke up. Nevertheless, McLeod and Walsh continued to urge Sitting Bull to surrender, saying he would never be recognized as a British Indian or granted a reservation in Canada. Furthermore, they continued to warn him that the buffalo could hardly sustain the indigenous peoples of the prairies now, let alone the added Sioux, and would disappear within the next few years. In 1879, American traders and hunters set fires along the border to keep the buffalo south, and this became the beginning of the end of the hunt on the Canadian prairies. So Mm -hmm. there aren't enough buffalo for a lot of reasons. Overhunting is a big one, but not necessarily from indigenous peoples. Right. Um, Or because, like, they get forced to hunt because there's nothing else for them. Yeah. But also, American hunters and trappers are, like, literally setting fires to cut off the buffalo migrating north, so to keep them south. The friendship that developed between Walsh and Sitting Bull may have been the major reason for the lack of serious troubles involving the Sioux in Western Canada. Walsh was, however, criticized for becoming too friendly with Sitting Bull and for failing to persuade him to return to the United States. This was likely the cause for Walsh's transfer to Fort Capel in the summer of 1880, and his replacement at Fort Walsh, Fitzroy Crozier, was not able to maintain good relations with Sitting Bull. So mm. Sitting Bull had been, like, chill with Walsh, but he's, like, not cool with this Fitzroy guy. Nope, Fitzroy. <laughs> Fitzroy's <carry> got to go. <laughs> <laughs> that summer, the lack of buffalo and the refusal of the Canadian government to give the Sioux either a reservation or food led to many of them going back to the United States, which had at least promised provisions. Mm-hmm. So essentially the Canadian government ignores these refugees to the point that they just go back to the really terrible political situation that they were running away from. (laughs) During the winter of 1880 to 81, Sitting Bull, considering his own return to the United States, made inquiries about the reception of those who had surrendered. In the spring, he met in Capel with our uh, old boy, uh, Colonel Sam Steele, oh. <laughs> meeting up. I think this is our first like legit crossover. Is like, it? Sam Steele, we talk about this in oh, the Sam Steele episode, Steel episode Yeah. Yeah. So we're here. We're here. We We've made, made it. it. <laughs> 22 episodes later? Yeah. Wow. Well, not later, but we're yeah. 22 episodes in, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think so. Oof. Oof. Sitting Bull also met with Edgar Dudeney, the commissioner of Indian Affairs, who urged him to cross the border. 
Walsh wired from the east where he was on leave that it was safe for him to go back. Okay. And finally, in July, Jean-Louis Laguerre, a local trader, led Sitting Bull and his remaining followers back to the United States where they surrendered at Fort Buford on the 19th of July, 1881. Sitting Bull was allowed to settle on the Standing Rock Reservation where he remained. The rest of his life was turbulent as he tried to protect his people as well as himself. He toured briefly with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, visiting huh. Toronto in August of 1885. That's a weird, like vaudeville theater stuff. That is so weird. So weird. And it's literally, they're just like, look at these weird, archaic peoples. Yeah. And like, it would be one of the most respected people in the Sioux Confederacy just yeah. standing there for your like entertainment. That doesn't seem like him. That's sad. He needs the money and he needs to like oh, protect his people. My yeah, heart. I know. That autumn, the Sioux were moved to a large reservation in the Dakota Territory, but the government pressured them to sign a new treaty, giving up much of their land. Sinning Bull had returned... Just leave them alone! (laughs) They can't. That's the white people can't just leave shit alone. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Sinning Bull had returned from Canada and held the Sioux resistance together for years, but in the summer of 1889, the reservation agent, James McLaughlin, was able to secure the Sioux's signatures by keeping the final treaty council a secret from Sitting Bull. Mm. The treaty broke up their 35,000 acres into six small reservations. So now they're not this like big reservation that I guess has more like political sway. Mm-hmm. And the only reason they were able to do it was they literally didn't invite Sitting Bull. <laughs> they were just like, just don't tell him. That's not and we'll fair be able to pass or it. right. Nope. Very unethical. <laughs> In October of 1890, Kicking Bear and Short Bull brought the Sioux one last hope of resistance. They taught them the ghost dance. The ghost dance ceremony began as part of a Native American religious movement in the 1800s. It was initiated by the peyote religious leader Wovaka after a vision in which Wovaka said God spoke to him and told him directly that by practicing this ceremony, the white man would leave and the Native American ancestors would come back to live in peace with the remaining Native Americans for the rest of eternity. Hmm. So it's like this born again religious movement. Okay. But with Native American religion. Okay. This religion quickly spread throughout the entire West and Native American tribes, including the Lakota. The name ghost dance is actually the name given to it by white settlers who were frightened of the spiritual dance and they said it had a ghostly aura about it. The U.S. government considered it a threat (laughs) because it's Mm. not normal. For them. For them, yeah. Yeah. This started the push to bring U.S. troops into the Dakotas where the Sioux were most prominent and where the ghost dance was being practiced the most. Mm -hmm. The U.S. government began arresting leading figures of the ghost dance movement. On the Sioux Reservation, McLaughlin had Kicking Bear arrested. Mm -hmm. Sitting Bull's arrest on December 15th, 1890, resulted in a struggle between reservation police and ghost dancers. In the struggle, Sitting Bull and 13 others were killed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Two weeks later, the military intercepted Bigfoot's band of ghost dancers. I didn't realize he died. Yeah, he was murdered. Um, in a police raid. I'm so sad. You just kind of slipped that in there. I know. It's like his, it's such an abrupt end. end. Like, yeah. I, I don't know how you build to it. It's just like Ugh. on December 15th, he was struggling with police and, and they shot him. Wow. 
It's awful. So Bigfoot's band of ghost dancers were uh, Minakanju Sioux, mostly women who had lost their husbands and other male relatives during the wars with the U.S. Army. When Colonel Forsyth tried to disarm the Minakanju of their rifles, a shot broke out and the surrounding soldiers opened fire. The Hochkiss guns shredded the camp on Wounded Knee Creek, killing, according to one estimate, 300 of the 350 men, women, and children. Wow. All because of a religious celebration that Sitting Bull dies, and then you have this, like, massacre two weeks later. Wow. Sitting Bull was buried in December of 1890 in the Fort Yates Military Cemetery after his death on the Standing Rock Reservation. The sanctity of his grave was not respected, with repeated rumors of grave robbing. In one case, two drunken soldiers supposedly broke into the grave in the early 1900s and stole a thigh bone. And that bone is supposedly in the possession of the North Dakota Historical Society. In 1953, the U.S. Department of the Interior ruled that any actions regarding the remains were up to the next of kin. So accompanied by a descendant, a self-appointed group of businessmen from Mobridge, South Dakota, extracted the remains of Sitting Bull to take him to South Dakota, where he was re-entombed looking over the Missouri River. Okay. Sitting Bull was an enigma of his time. He was considered a hero by some and a savage murderer by others. Major Walsh, on hearing of the death of his friend, said, He was not the bloodthirsty man, reports from the prairies made him out to be. He asked for nothing but justice. He was not a cruel man. Yeah. He was kind of heart. He was not dishonest. He was truthful. Oh, and that's, that's lovely. The story of Sitting Bull. Well, that's sad. Which is really <sighs> narrowly talked about in the Heritage Minute. Yeah. It's such a strange, narrow... Like, I understand... Does he say he died in the Heritage Minute? I don't even remember it saying that like no. he died in a massacre. Yeah. It, well... Because it's like, okay, so the Heritage Minute is trying to make this a piece of Canadian history, which right. it is, but it's like Sitting Bull, most of his story is not about him being in Canada. Right. His like resistance against Americans, which I think personally, that's what they like to focus on. And they're like, look how awful Americans treated 100%. indigenous peoples and look at us. We were better, apparently. <laughs> like, yeah. Even though they're just as it's bad. A, it's a problem, I think, and I'm guilty for it. It's a problem that I think many Canadians have, and especially Canadian politics, is that you can't compare yourself to what's going on in another country. Even if it's close to yeah. you. Even if it's right below you, you know, yeah. you have to kind of make sure that you're doing the best that you can where you are for your people. Yeah, and at the um, end of the day, you shouldn't be listening to two white women telling you about right. the oppressions of indigenous peoples. You should have yeah. indigenous voices telling yeah. you how these kinds of centuries of treatment mm -hmm. have impacted their no. cultures and their current state of affairs and how we can reach some kind of reconciliation on that. Yeah, and I think I can speak for Grace and I and, and probably our producer Mark as well is that we... Like we've told you many times, don't know everything no. and uh, might not be the most qualified uh, to be having these conversations with you, our listeners. But we're trying and we want to learn and yeah. we're open to any information or corrections that you might have about the things that we've that we've said today and in any of our episodes. So Yeah. And but at the same time, I think even if we're not the most qualified yeah. I think it is important that oh 
you shouldn't feel like you have a perfect understanding of something to start talking about no. it. So hopefully this will lead yeah. you to pursue your own yeah. research, perhaps maybe something a little closer to home yeah. or an individual that you've heard of but never yeah. really looked up. Because he's like super cool. Yeah. Like not only is he a badass, he's like funny. He's funny. <laughs> he's like, do you want to sign my copy of Oliver Twist? Yeah. Like that's the best freaking story that's ever. <laughs> Yeah, and then with this platform, you know, this is what we can do. Having a podcast yeah. is we can we can talk about it. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Minute Women podcast. We always love to hear from you guys, so make sure you follow us on all our social media channels. On Instagram, we're at Minute Women Podcast. It's the same on Facebook, and we're also on Twitter, but it's at the Minute Women. And then we also have a really great website that we're a big fan of. It's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> and there's lovely pictures of our faces that you can go check out. Uh, we're always posting new media and new information on our social medias. So go check it out and let us know what you think. Yeah. And if you want to check out our website, it's minutewomenpodcast.ca. Yes. But biggest help for us is if you rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, download the episodes. We hope you enjoy all of them because we enjoy recording them. <laughs> yeah, and we love to get your messages. So yeah. shoot us a message wherever you feel most comfortable. We also have an email address. Mm-hmm. We're podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Yeah. Let can, us know. We love to stay connected. We so sure do. Let us know. Anyways. Thanks Bye for guys. listening. Bye. Thank you.